Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. It's Culture Club time and joining us today a voice very familiar to you from all his contributions to the programme over the years and occasionally standing in for me as well. He's the newly appointed editor of the Business Post, Daniel McConnell. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us. And actually to start, a little bit different to the first song and we'll get to that that you ever bought. Gigs, because I believe you were at Bruce Springsteen last night. I was, actually, yeah. It was a really good gig. Now, I've seen Bruce about nine or ten times at this stage. It wouldn't be my favourite gig. I saw him in Belfast in 2007, the week before Christmas, and that by far was the best Bruce Springsteen gig. It was was that? It was the Magic Tour. Um, and the band were just on fire. I really liked the magic. Magic is probably one of my favorite Bruce Springsteen albums. Um, but that the opening song was "We Take Care," you know, "We Take Care of Our Own" was the kind of the anthemic sort of opening to the to the concert. But it, you know, between you know, there was a gang of us who had gone up from Dublin to it. It being Christmas week, you know, it was pre kids, so we just had a, we had a ball, and it was just an amazing. And the, the Odyssey actually was an amazing venue for for the gig. So, but last night was very good. Bit of chaos going in. It was like we were 20 minutes late. We missed the first 20 minutes because of the queues. I think there was probably an, uh, not enough uh, time given to a lot of people probably just coming straight from work um, but and probably a few people who were staying in the pub as well <laughs> who decided to leave at the last minute. But uh, that aside, I mean, 73 years of age, he's just fantastic. Still amazing. And the voice is as good as ever. I think it's probably, I heard, I saw David McCullough of RT who's a, an avid Bruce Springsteen fan uh, say it was the best version of Thunder Road he'd ever he- uh, heard and I would probably go along with that it was pretty good Why was that? Just the other way sometimes a particular phrase of singing a particular movement or just the way the mood of the, the night like the, the rain had stopped it had been bucketing down rain before the gig had started the rain had stopped it was a beautiful night and it was just the the, the crowd were just totally you know, you know kind of captivated by it it was just absolutely fantastic Yet you have lots of other gigs for us for the best gig you were ever at. Yeah. And tell us about one that you actually participated in. This is one of the best presents I ever got. My missus got me a, a Christmas present where uh, I got was able to get up on stage with Rufus and Marfus, Martha Wainwright. They were doing a kind of a charity gig in Dublin in memory of their late mother. Uh, and as part of the gig, a small number of us were able to get up on stage and sing a, a song, Pospirina, that they, they it was their, one of their mother's famous songs. And then... But it was kind of a, a Rufus and Martha with friends. So Neil Hannon from the Divine Comedy was there. Conor O'Brien from the Villagers was there. Paul Brady was there. So I'm standing on stage between a, a, a quite pissed Neil Hannon and a quite pissed Paul Brady. And it was great fun. It was really, really good fun. We got to sing The Fairy Tale in New York as well. Hang on, how did you get there? My, you, you could buy, it was a special treat my missus could buy. You could pay an extra few quid to go in and do the sound check and then go, go up on stage for the last two songs of the night. Okay, so, but it's not your first time on stage singing. No, clearly. it's not. I used to play a lot. Quite with a lot. who? Well, we've been in various bands, and uh, I also kind of played bass for for a number of friends of mine who are singer songwriters. Um, and so, I, like throughout my kind of teens and and twenties, I would have gigged quite a lot and recorded quite a lot as well. So, like there was a point where it was either going to be journalism or or music, and you know that fatal decision had to be made. And Ever regret that? Uh, no, I, I, I really miss playing. Like with, like with the kids and all the rest of it, I, like I don't play anywhere near as much as I used to and I don't sing as much as I used to, but I, and I really love, like I love playing and I love singing. Um, but like, um, and I see a lot of my mates who did stay with it and, you know, have kind of over the last couple of years given it up because they couldn't, they weren't able to make a living out of it. Uh, I don't regret 
journalism because it was like a defined substitute. It's been an amazing, very fascinating career. Uh, I've had great fun. And, but I've also Does been, it ever give you the buzz of performing on stage? No, it, but it's a different kind of buzz. It's a different challenge. And we were speaking yesterday, Matt, to, to school kids about that thrill of, you know, your first byline when you're in college or whatever like that. I mean, that, that thrill certainly is still there. My, my thrill now these days is putting together a, as good of a newspaper as we can and yeah. watching others kind of kind of uh, do the reporting. But, you know, that thrill of being on stage and singing with your pals and, and you know, writing songs with, with your mates is, a, you know, it's a very specific kind of joy. Uh, and I look, you know, look, I'm kind of waiting till the kids get it old enough so I can actually disappear a bit more and kind of... Uh, get back into playing a bit more because I do like it's it's great fun. What like, was the name of the band? We we are the main band we were in was Lucidian. It was a terrible name, but it was a cla- it was a kind of a Radiohead kind of inspired sort of, you know, moniker. We were like every band at that stage wanted to sound like Radiohead. It was on the it was just after OK Computer had been released and they were definitely the most influential band at that time for us. Um and then our later incarnation was Havana Calling uh, in 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 the noughties, but they were like they were like myself and Ali O'Dwyer, who's my one of my best mates, who's probably one of the best singers I've ever ever worked with or ever seen. Um, we were just like we, we were friends since since school, since primary school, and uh, we just yeah. We Where was that? In Kilmacud, in St Lawrence's Kilmacud, and then St Penilda's in in Kilmacud, and uh, in tra- we started playing in transition year, and it was it was amazing actually. It was kind of I because my dad was very musical, and he had gotten us to. Uh, do guitar lessons and I'd kind of gone away from when football came into the mix you know at age 10 Italia 90 but then you know when girls come on the scene and been able to sing and been able to play the guitar became very important so <laughs> we, we became very good at that You have nominated those your favourite ever gigs something from Birmingham's Symphony Hall Yeah I'm a huge Elvis Costello fan and uh, Ali and myself would have gotten very much into Costello in, in like when we were in that band and I had the foresight to I saw Costello was doing a solo tour he wasn't doing any gigs in Dublin so myself and uh, one of my pals decided just to uh, hop on a flight over to Birmingham and it was just himself and eight guitars he had a semicircle of eight guitars acoustic and electric and uh, his voice was just absolutely stunning and it, like he played a real varied mix of his hits and his kind of back catalogue but at one moment it, I'll never forget it he took it he plugged out the guitar and stood up to the side of the stage and just sang, sang a cappella and his voice just carried through the room and it was just you know th- those moments at a gig where your kind of hair stands up at the back of your neck it was it was spintingly good and I don't think and I've seen some really good gigs I mean David Gilmore in the Royal Albert Hall the year after they did Pink Floyd did Live 8 uh, was a stunning an amazing gig and to see it was the last ever time I think he played Echoes with Rick Wright you know um so that was an amazing gig, and then Prince in in Malahide Castle, the last time he ever played in Ireland. Like, and we know now, know the, the chaotic backstory to all of that. He had fired his entire crew that morning, uh, and an Irish uh, guitar tech had to kind of fill in, in his place. But that was Prince at his best. He was amazing. So, but like Costello, definitely was the was the cream of the crop for me. Okay, well, we better get back to the first single you ever bought. But you're not giving us a single because no. you went straight to buying an album as the first. Yeah, single you so got. I, I I I rather cheekily jumped on the eighty six books from outside Stroganwood uh, at the age of about 11 I went into town I had a £10 HMV voucher uh, which I got for Christmas or a birthday I can't remember which and uh, the, the the cassette tape of Queen uh, Greatest Hits Volume 1 with you know, the black and white you know, with Bohemian Rhapsody and everything on it um, it was seven ninety nine for the cassette I still know because of the sticker I still have the sticker on the, on the cassette with the sticker on it and I had the voucher but rather than just give me another voucher back they gave me the change back so I was able to buy a can of Club Orange and some sweets <laughs> for the bus home so I was more than happily happy with myself and you still listen to that album? I, I do now. It's all like Spotify is my kind of main. Like, and I, I, but I have a, I have our old when my when my dad died, we took I took with the old stereo you know, with the separate unit bits. Yes. So, so I took that in my. So I, I love listening to the vinyl. But again, it, it's kind of tricky with kids. Uh, it's in the kids' play 
room now at the moment, so it's not ideal. But uh, I, I like. I, I'm very grateful for the love of music my dad gave me because he was a huge music fan and we were Beatles obsessed in, in our house. But and we get to yeah, that in a minute. But, uh, no, but um, I tend not to use a cassette tape all that often anymore because I'm trying to tear it up because I, I know if I used it, the kids will probably tear it apart. Let's hear a little bit from that album. Another one bites the dust. Who's the bass player, and I'm a bass player. Much underrated, but a brilliant songwriter as well. And uh, I, the one thing I love about Queen is not only were they amazing players, they all were incredible songwriters, the four of them. So they're hard to beat, really. Your favourite album? Really hard for me to say, but like I, I've picked out Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd, and it was one of those moments where I, when the first time I heard it, I remember where it was, I was working in the Leprosan Inn as a barman uh, in college. And I had not really knew, I hadn't known much about Pink Floyd growing like kind of before then because we were very kind of Brit pop kind of focused at that point, and kind of so the Smiths and the Stone Roses. But I remember working late nights and we were cleaning up, and someone put it on, and I remember being stopped in my tracks, going, "What in he- the hell is this?" Like that opening to um, "Breathe, Breathe in the Air," and I just went, and I just remember going, "I need to get more of this," and I listened to it again, and I still listen to, I obsess over, and I just think. From a musical point of view, from a writing point of view, the themes that Roger Waters was putting forward, the playing by David Gilmore and Rick Wright and Nick Mason, it's just, for me, it's it's quite nearly the perfect album. Let's hear a little bit. Let's hear the very well-known track, Money. Be a track for the editor of the Business Post, Daniel <laughs> McConnell, who's with us tonight. Money from Dark Side of the Moon. Go on, name a few more albums because I know it was very tough for you to it actually was. So get another, it down to another album for us was very important growing up was Astro Weeks by Van Morrison. Um, and again, it was one that we had found almost by accident. But again, if you listen to it's not your typical album. It was recorded in a very specific way. But you hear songs like Cypress Avenue, the way Young Lovers do, Madame George. Like it's just absolutely stunning. And I still like. Like I, I, I still go back to it again and again and it's still as fresh um, and I, it's one of those things that I've seen him van live God knows how many times 
and he, I don't think he's ever matched it live what, what he managed to do on the record um, but like he was just on fire like, and it's it's such an influential record I mean if you, you cite everyone from you two to to much more recent artists like Astro Weeks is, is a real touchstone for an awful lot of people and it's a, it's a hugely important album for me You also mentioned the Stone Roses a yeah, moment ago their first album was huge in college like it was like on it's the brilliant it is and like it was one of those ones if uh, anyone knows the trap in UCD which was the kind of the pool hall in UCD like and there was a jukebox there like I'd say the Stone Roses disc was on constantly and uh, you know everything from you know She Bangs the Drums to you know I Am The Resurrection to you know um you know, made of stone. It's just a brilliant album, and again, you can. It's one of those ones. You know, I put it down for a while. You pick it back up again, and it still feels incredibly fresh. And you know, a lot of people will you'll give out Stone Roses saying Ian Brown's not the best singer in the world, but, and but you've got like you've got amazing. Like Manny is a much underrated drummer. Rennie is a brilliant bass player, and obviously John Squire is a guitar player. You know, he he, he was. I think, in my view, at that time, unparalleled. I mean, I know a lot of people talk about John uh, Johnny Marr, but for me, Squire is just brilliant. And you had U 2s Actung Baby yeah. on the list that you gave us. That was a huge well. album for me because that was that was kind of at, well, that was nineteen ninety. So we like my my older brother Simon was a huge U two fan. So we would have really kind of gotten to know them through the Joshua Tree. And again, like it was the eighties. So you know, we I remember we, when we got our first CD kind of player. We probably had four discs, and one of them was like was was the Joshua Tree. Um, but when Octon Baby came out, it was such a change of direction. It was such an important album for them in their story in terms of going to Berlin, you know, uh, kind of throwing out the past and kind of rejecting what they did in Rattling Home and the Joshua Tree, and particularly in America, and to come out with such a, an iconic album. It's it's just like and the song and the and the you know the songs are just fantastic. And again, it's one of those ones. You, it, there's not a weak moment on that album in my view. Um, and I just think it's still by far their best work I don't think they've done anything that, that's been like I loved Pop as a, I think Pop's a really interesting album but everything, and all that you can't leave behind was obviously a big album for them when Beautiful Day came out and, and the rest of it but for me Octane Baby is still their best work And then you used to come across Bono in your days as a budding rock star yourself Yeah so when we, so Robbie Fox who used to own Rainers would be probably familiar to a lot of people but Robbie was our manager so Robbie spotted us busking on Grafton Street at, like we were singing Beatles songs and it was at the time when Oasis were massive so they wanted he wanted us initially to come in, come in and do a gig in Rainers in the downstairs bar on the following Tuesday to do kind of Beatles and Oasis covers and then we kind of you know he, he kind of kept us on and we, we kept growing as a kind of an, like an original act but we used to rehearse in Rainers downstairs in the dance floor the, the dance club and, and then jazz club but we used to sneak up or he used to let us in up to the VIP lounge upstairs where a lot of the celebs and uh, you'd often come across certain Mr. Paul Hewson and certain other kind of big wigs of, of Dublin's uh, uh, notoriety. I never never saw you in there now, Matt. Like, or maybe, I was maybe, more a Lily's person, but I would have been in there every now and again. More discerning, yeah. are you? But, uh, <laughs> um, but no, but we were like, we were, what, 18, 19 at the time, you know, just out of school. Like Dublin was, in fairness to what Robbie, Robbie's big gift to us was he opened Dublin, the doors of Dublin to us. And that was fantastic. Like he gave us an opportunity to meet. Like, so... Um, Joe Elliott and Rick Savage from Def Leppard were all, were regulars in there, but like we, we were, you know, we were introduced to these kind of people. Um, big, you know, big kind of media writers were, were we did workshops with them all through Robbie. So like, I, I'd be forever grateful for for the chance and opportunity that Robbie Fox gave us. Let's move on. So, favorite band or artist? Given the way you've been talking, it must be the Beatles, is it? Well, the Beatles were huge in my house uh, growing up, and again when I was fifteen or sixteen, uh, the you might remember the the BBC did a, or the series the Beatles anthology, and they released three double uh, albums in relation to it or in conjunction with it, 
and that for me was just brilliantly timed because that's the time when my musical kind of journey had really started and we started getting into the band and Oasis and Blur were kicking off and obviously the Oasis kind of homage or rip off of the Beatles whatever side of the coin you are um, going through the like it was a brilliant way of getting to know the Beatles story from the very their humble beginnings in Liverpool their journey over to Hamburg coming back and then kind of the move down to London and you know becoming ensconced in, in Abbey Road stopping touring you know the various departures from George Harrison leaving coming back you know people throwing wobblies and stuff uh, it was just a fabulous introduction to the Beatles and again I'm trying to my kids will probably curse me because I keep trying to introduce the Beatles to them and they have no interest at the moment but um, What age are they? Nine, six and three um, my, my my youngest loves Yellow Submarine Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, I think that's the kind of, but like just for me, the Beatles were just everything. They'll get there. They will, they will get there. Um, but, you know, and what was great, again, going back to the band I was in with Ali, like we kind of not modelled ourselves on Lennon McCartney, but we kind of saw we were singing duo and that idea of kind of the, that, that, that combination of two people working together, collaborating was a very powerful kind of, and we obviously kind of tried to replicate what, what George and, or what John Lennon and Paul McCartney did, not to any great success, of course, like, but, um, but they were very foremost, they were foremost in our heads, you know, when we were doing all of that, like, but uh, yeah, no, they were just amazing, simply amazing. Okay, I need to take a break. Okay. And what we'll do is we'll come back and we'll talk about movies, television, books, plays, and your buried treasures. More with Danny McConnell, editor of the Business Post and the Culture Club after this. Welcome back and we're joined today for the Culture Club by a voice very familiar as part of our political coverage for many years here on The Last Word. Now the editor of the Business Post, Daniel McConnell. Okay, favourite movie? You've gone from one way before you were born, yeah. a classic from 1940. 41 or 42? Yeah. yeah. Casablanca. Absolutely love it. I just, I, again, I was a late arrival to it um, and it was one of those things it was kind of Stevens's Day lit the fire put it on you know with my cold ham and, and turkey and crackers and all the rest of it and I instantly got why it was so why it's so revered I instantly got why people love and go back to it all the time you know the the undertones or the overtones of Nazism and, and all of that but then it's just so brilliantly done it's brilliantly written it's brilliantly acted it's it's set so wonderfully um, and and you know the, the classic lines you know you know, we always have Paris you know here's looking at you kid but for me the scene of scenes is you know where Victor Laszlo is trying to get the exit visas to go to, to Lisbon um, and uh, the Germans are in and they, they start singing a German anthem or a German tune and he goes and gets the, the the house band to strike up Le Marciers and it obviously leads to a groundswell of the the, 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 the punters uh, to sing with it and it's just a fantastic fantastic scene We actually have it Oh play.
good. So, so good. And even the clip, that clip is up on YouTube and I, I regularly find myself just going back to watch it because again, it just, if you watch it and you see, like there was clearly emotion because it was obviously shot during the war. So like that, that like you could see there was probably a bit of reality kicking into uh, in there as well but like it's just such a fat and the twist at the end and all the rest of it is just fat like it's just one like I said it's it's kind of like a comfort blanket you go back to it again and again We asked you for a favourite player, musical yeah. or theatre show you've actually gone for opera I have and most people go what the hell are you doing but again it was this is something that uh, happened to me during COVID-19 I was in the kitchen with my youngest and for whatever reason Lyric FM was on uh, I think my mother-in-law may have been up and she's a, she would listen to Lyric quite a bit and then uh, I remember it was Celine Byrne the Irish soprano who's done the Culture Club yeah, for us here previously uh, yes. who is an absolutely stunning singer and she was singing Vizzy um, Arte, which is one of the main songs in, in, in Tosca and I remember again hearing it it just stopped me in my tracks and I remember going what is that and I uh, just started through Covid there's low again YouTube is, is my go-to and you see there's different versions of the entire uh, show there one with Pavarotti which is just absolutely amazing but you know and again I was going primarily for the music but actually if you get into the story it's like it's got jealousy it's got revenge it's got death it's got you know so it's ticking all your boxes like really so I just Like any good edition of the Business Post hey, Well that? exactly well <laughs> certainly so far in my tenure yeah we're, we're, we're trying to liven it up a bit but yeah no it, it is certainly um it has all the main components and for me it's just like I could have gone for something like Le Mis, which was one that we would have been brought to as kids both here and in London um, you know and and was lucky enough to kind of go see a number of shows in Broadway but like for me it, Tosca is just it, it's, it's cream of the crop at the moment And that song you mentioned Vizi Darte is that yes, how you pronounce it. it Let's hear Celine Byrne sing it Culture to the Culture Club. Mm, I thought you'd like that one. <laughs> not bad, not bad. Okay, favourite book or author? Why is Christopher Hitchens top of your list? Because he drives me absolutely bonkers, but he can make a point like no other. Uh, his his polemics are simply stunning. And if you go back, uh, I point to his book, God is Not Great, in relation to how, the subtitle of that book is How Religion Poisons Everything. Uh, it's a, a really evocative destruction of the wrongs that the church, and particularly the Catholic Church in this world, uh, has caused um, and it asked it forced me to con, you know confront a lot of my own prejudices in relation to religion uh, you know I, I would have grown up in quite a devout household um, both my parents would have been very you know my mum probably would have been more devout than my dad would have been um, 
but it, he certainly kind of crystallised a lot of the feelings or the, you know, he, he had the vocabulary uh, to kind of put together what I was generally feeling around the, the role of religion, particularly in Irish society. Well, we um, actually have an extract of him from the audiobook of God is Not Great. If I cannot definitively prove that the usefulness of religion is in the past and that its foundational books are transparent fables and that it is a man-made imposition and that it has been an enemy of science and inquiry and that it has subsisted largely on lies and fears and been the accomplice of ignorance and guilt as well as of slavery, genocide, racism and tyranny, I can most certainly claim that religion is now fully aware of these criticisms. It is also fully aware of the ever-mounting evidence concerning the origins of the cosmos and the origin of species, which consign it to marginality, if not to irrelevance. I have tried to deal with most faith-based objections as they occur in the unfolding argument, but there is one remaining argument that one may not avoid. When the worst has been said about the Inquisition and the witch trials and the Crusades and the Islamic imperial conquests and the horrors of the Old Testament, is it not true that secular and atheist regimes have committed crimes and massacres that are, in the scale of things, at least as bad, if not worse? When I consult with my secular and atheist friends, I find that this has become the most common and frequent objection that they encounter from religious audiences. The point deserves a detailed reply. To begin with a slightly inexpensive observation, it is interesting to find that people of faith now seek defensively to say that they are no worse than fascists or Nazis or Stalinists. One might hope that religion had retained more sense of its dignity than that. He really knew how to put the boot in, didn't he? He certainly did. But he also, like, again, you just look at, if you try and personalise what he said there, like, I mean, the, no word in there is an orphan. Like, he chose and crafted his words. And what was amazing about Hitchens, uh, who died probably, it's probably 10 or 11 years now since he's died, um, like, he was so prolific in his writings. Like, he would write a column out every day and to the standards that, w- like, most of us would be only, like, you could only dream of aspiring. But, you know, another one of his big books for me were, was the No One Left to Lie To, which he was his absolute polemic against the Clintons and just how Bill Clinton was this really, really horrible person who managed to get into and abandoned the left in terms of welfare reform. Um, I don't agree with everything he says, but what he did do is he gave me the ammunition to construct a good article and gave you the kind of the confidence to say that if you want to go for somebody, just how you do it. And that's, he's been a big, big influence on me. But also when it comes to somewhat lighter reading. Yeah, I love P- you can't go wrong with P.G. Woodhouse. And I go back to, I give Angus Fanning and Anne Harris credit in this when I was in the Sunday Independent. They, they they encourage us not only to be reporters, but to be thinkers in a way. And they always were encouraging, particularly, I was only, what, 25, 26, to expand my, you know, my repertoire uh, in, in terms of what I was reading. So we were told, read D.H. Lawrence, read P.G. Woodhouse. And, and I got into, I was kind of, I you know, G's and Muster, when the, the TV series was, was kind of big in our house, so, but like, like Woodhouse is a is a firm staple in my in my palate every every year. And then spy thrillers. Sorry, say again. Spy th- spy thrillers. Oh yeah, spy thrillers. Yeah. So again, my dad would have been a huge uh, reader of novels. He was total uh, World War Two and Cold War aficionado. So we our house was littered with like you know Jack Higgins, Len Dayton, John le Carre books, which we sadly dumped them a lot of them when uh, when he died and I, I've just gone back and bought them all again. But um, you know I like I love a good spy thriller all the time. So yeah. Television, okay. Yeah. As a kid, what did you go for? We were we were classic eighties kids. So Airwolf, the A Team, and Knight Rider were the three big ones for me. Um, what was Airwolf? Airwolf was the kind of the it was the Knight Rider in the sky. Kind of it was a kind of a secret souped up helicopter that killed lots of bad guys. Um, Jan Michael Vincent was in it. 
it's very, it's excellent. I'm just a bit too old for yeah, that. Yeah. I remember the A-Team, I remember Night Rider, yeah, yeah. never heard of Airwolf. Airwolf, yeah, that, that, they were our three staples. Um, and kind of now, in kind of more recent times, you know, like The Wire was probably the best TV I've ever uh, ever watched. So I obviously watched and devoured The West Wing and like The Thick of It and In the Loop, the film equivalents and all the rest. I love political dramas. And Veep. Uh, I love Veep as well, um, and but Veep you have to kind of it's so intense you can only probably watch it in short spurts, but it's it's absolutely fantastic. Um, I, I'm t- I'm tying I'm dying not to mention The Sopranos because I know everybody who comes on the show probably mentions The Sopranos in terms of TV, but that really was amazing. But um, the other one I'm watching at the moment I've gone back to watch is Band of Brothers. You know the, the yeah. yeah again really like that's. TV making it at the highest quality. Like. But we've actually picked a scene from the West Wing because oh. we haven't played a bit from the West Wing for quite a while. Oh, it comes good. up, but we'll play a little bit in which President Bartlett and his team review a presidential debate that has recently concluded. Sir, and not to put my head in the lion's mouth, but by repeating the name of your opponent in public, you're essentially giving him free advertising. Cal thinks you should start referring to him as my opponent or the other guy, the other side. I don't know, maybe there are other suggestions. You want me to refer to Senator John Hoynes of Texas, who at the moment has a 48-point lead for the Democratic nomination as the other guy? Sir? You're not afraid it's going to make me look like I can't remember his name? No. I am. I think it's going to make me look like I can't remember his name. I think it's going to make me look addled. I think it's going to make me look dotty. And even if it didn't make me look like those things, it would remain a stupid idea. What's next? Nothing? Excellent. Okay, what's next? I wonder when Joe Biden goes to debate Donald Trump, will he be able to remember Trump's name or call him the other guy? Well, he certainly can be accused of being adult. I think a little bit. Can Joe, like he's he's looking a bit clumsy, well, not clumsy is probably the wrong word, but Jesus, he's looking a bit uh, scattered, you know, even not remembering where he was five days after he left Ireland. Uh, given your interest in politics, having been a political correspondent and editor for so many years before becoming editor of the Business Post, how realistic is the West Wing, do you think? I think in some ways it was very realistic in terms of the process, in terms of how legislation and stuff got Pass. I found it very saccharine. Like particularly the early seasons, I found it like you know, the, like there was always the kind of the do-goody nature of the Democrats. Like the Democrats are not do-gooders. Like you know, they're they're just a kind of a. <sighs> Like they're not great. Like careful, you're turning into Cal Thomas. I am a little bit, but like, uh, <laughs> but like you, you know, the Democrats say they claim to represent poor people, but it, they generally end up being kind of Ivy League elitists, you know, who kind of talk about the poor in the, in the abstract rather than in in the main and not knowing anything really about yeah. what what the poor people are. Um, America is just has always been a, a like since I did my J one in in New Orleans. Uh, America has been a, a place of real fascination for me, so that's why the West Wing kind of still my wife goes nuts when I still play it uh, all the time, but because um, she's sick of it. Um, but like it, like it still it still stands up in my view, notwithstanding the sort of caveats about you know dipping into kind of bouts of saccharine from time to time. It stands up, believe yeah. me. Anyway, finish your treasured treasure. You've given us. We asked you anything: a song, a band, a painting, a podcast, a book, a movie, anything you people should know more about. You gave us two things. I did. One is the Bonnie Men, who are my favourite traditional Irish band. I know two, two Connor and Barry Lyons. They're an amazing traditional Irish band, um, and I think they should. Everyone should know about them because they're just amazing. But my second one, and I think we have a clip of this, is the Slow Readers Club. I went to see them in Dublin in the Academy about three or four weeks ago. I only stumbled upon these guys late last year and they are simply incredible they are like I, I can't, their sound is absolutely massive they're a synth kind of based rock band from Manchester even though they support Manchester United I don't hold that against them but Aaron Starkey is as credible and a convincing and compelling lead singer I've seen since Morrissey he's just absolutely amazing I'm looking forward to hearing this this is Slow Readers Club this is Plant the Seed
Okay, so you got me interested. I'm going to go and listen to some of the Slow Readers Club. If, you, if I recommend a, a track, you start with a lunatic off their, not their most recent album, but their previous album. That's a really good starting point. Daniel McConnell, editor of the Business Post. Thank you for being with us for the Culture Club. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today, F-